Originally, I was going to talk about the night out because I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, I asked Dave to do it because, um, I don't know about you, uh, I, I woke up this morning and I got a text from a friend uh, just asking if I knew what was going on in uh, Virginia, down in Charlottesville, and I have not uh, been on social media, I haven't been watching the news, I didn't know anything about it. And I felt really bad because I didn't say anything last night, but I, I looked at it this morning and, and honestly, it's a mess when I look at what's happening. And so I, I wrote something uh, about that that I just wanted to share because as, as a church our size, uh, we can't not say something. We can't not acknowledge. And, and for our church, what does it mean to pray and to be God's people? So I just want you to think about this. Uh, I, I do not know fully what is happening in Virginia this weekend, but here's what I know. <clears throat> there were significant protests taking place from whites inciting hatred toward blacks. Chants or signs with ties to the KKK, Nazi slogans, Confederate flags were prominent. There was a counter-protest taking place, and a white man from Ohio accelerated his car into the crowd and then fled. One woman was killed, and 19 others were injured. I will not make a blanket statement about everyone involved, but I will say this. Racism is wrong. Valuing one color over another is wrong. Injuring, targeting, or hurting someone because of their skin color is wrong. All too often we yield to the fear that causes us to hate those we don't even know, and it is wrong, deeply wrong. For too long our country had systems in place promoting this, facilitating this, and that is wrong. As a church and as followers of Christ, we are to be bearers of good news. We are to bind up the broken. We are to lift up the weak. We are to bring healing to the sick and rescue to the oppressed. We're also to speak against evil when we see it and not, I repeat, not stay silent in the midst of darkness and sin. Jesus called us to be a city on a hill, one that cannot be hidden or missed because of the great light that goes out from it. Truth, love, mercy, and grace through Jesus Christ should be our light. And what's happening right now is darkness, and we will not join it either by subtle approval or ignoring its existence. Today I'm reminded of the need for the people of God to be God's people. So before I get into my message, I want to take a moment and I want to pray for the families. I want to pray for those in fear. I want to pray for those who are hurting. I want to pray for the peace of Christ to descend on that place and our entire country and bring true healing. Would you pray with me? God, we're here today because we need you, and we acknowledge that. We acknowledge our dependence on you. We acknowledge our need for you. And God, even now, I pray for those who are in Virginia who are right on the front lines of needing your love. They need your peace. God, we lift up the families of those that are hurting. We lift up those that are in fear. God, we pray for those that are injured. We pray, God, that you would bring healing and peace and that, God, what's happening down there at many times is a small piece of what's happening on a larger scale in many other places. Lord, we're reminded that we are called to not be of this world. We are called to be a people that are uniquely called out for you. We're called to be a people who look different, who love different, who live different, who forgive abundantly, who love graciously. God, help us through your spirit to be that kind of people. 
God, help those who are living in darkness to see the light of who you are. God, we're reminded that apart from you, we can do nothing. And God, we live in a world that desires to be apart from you. And because of it, there is great pain, there is great sadness, there is great injustice. So God, even though we are called to be out of this world, help us to know how to live in it. Give us words when we need them. Give us action when it's called for. Give us peace to trust you as the great judge and as our great advocate and as our great reconciler who will come one day and establish your kingdom in truth and power and glory unequivocally and undeniably. And God, help us to live as your people until that day comes. So Lord, we give this to you in Jesus' name, amen. I have a question. This is getting into my message. Do you hear God calling in your life? Do you hear God calling in your life? My first uh, memory of hearing God's voice was when I was a little kid, and I remember him calling me to serve. And I remember it was, it was a very strange moment for me because I was small, but I I really believe that I heard God's voice audibly calling me to serve Him. And I didn't know if that meant I was going to work in a church. I didn't know if it meant I was going to go on the mission field, but I felt at a young age that God called me to do something different. And that radically affected how I grew up. For years, I wouldn't talk about it because I was a little embarrassed about it. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do with it. But I knew that as I got older, I always felt like I had this thing that I couldn't shake, that God wanted me to serve Him somewhere, somehow. As a teenager, I I heard God call me, but I struggled. I struggled like a lot of teenagers with lines of purity and faithfulness and identity. Who am I? Who does God say that I am? Am I defined by the world? Am I defined by my parents? Am I defined by my friends? What is God's call in my life, and do I really hear His voice speaking to me? In college, I I heard Him calling me again as I got a deeper sense through meaningful community of what it really means to follow Jesus. I had uh, older men who mentored me. I had uh, brothers in Christ who challenged me. I had relationships that helped me hear God's call and respond to Him at work in my life. Eight years ago, Carly and I heard him when God's voice called us to adopt our two youngest girls from Swaziland. And I can tell you that, uh, that adoption was nowhere on my radar that there was nothing going on in my life that had me looking forward or asking about it or praying for it or seeking after it. It was not on my bucket list of things to do. I was very comfortable, very content with where I was, but I went into a situation. I went outside of my normal routine, and I saw a great need, and I felt like God say to me, literally, I heard Him say to me, what if I asked you to do something about this problem? And so Carly and I, we prayed about it, and we felt convicted that God wanted us to adopt, and so we did. And then seven and a half years ago, the call came again from God to come to New Jersey, because honestly, that's what it would take to come to New Jersey, was literally hearing God say, go, 
go to New Jersey. No offense to New Jersey residents. I love you. My heart is for you. But I ask you this question. Do you hear God calling in your life? Another way to look at it is where is God showing up in your life right now? When you think about it, where do you see God directly showing up? Where is he at work? When is the last time that he saved you? When is the last time that he rescued you? That he moved you beyond what you would do on your own and he took you to someplace different? That you allowed God to shake you out of your status quo and do something different for him? See, as Christians, many of us are good, and I've been guilty of this too, where when we talk about God at work in our life, we're really good at saying, well, when I was, when I was seven, I gave my life to Jesus. Now, I'm not criticizing that because I'm in that same camp. But I get nervous when I hear Christians talking about the stories of God moving 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I saw God moving. Do you hear God calling you today? What about this past week? What about this past month? What about this past year? Where have you heard his voice calling you and how are you responding? Because this idea of God calling you is essential because it's the difference between experiencing a real life of fullness with Jesus and just getting by. I was thinking about that because this past July, uh, I had a chance to go with a group of high schoolers down to uh, Quito, Ecuador. That's right. Right there. I told them to come so they could do that. I was hoping for more, but it'll work. Signs, banners. Um, So we took 20 high schoolers and five adults. And it was my opportunity to try to uh, compensate for my age and to try to be relevant and to try to be involved and, and be engaged. And, and I got to tell you, I had a great, great time. There's a, there's a picture up there of the team. Uh, and, and first of all, it was an amazing group of students who had a chance to be used by God to do some pretty incredible things. That happened on site in Ecuador. And there's a ton of things I can say that I won't. But let me tell you, when I, when I met with them, when we met as a team uh, to talk about what do you want to see happen <clears throat> when we go? What are you looking forward to? What are you expecting? When we would talk about that, they really struggled with verbalizing what they expected God to do because honestly, they had no idea. But what they knew was that they wanted him to move. What they knew going into it, even though they had no idea what they would be doing or what would happen or what would be involved or what what would take place, what they knew was that they wanted to hear God and they wanted to see Him. And so they went on a short-term trip. And and the benefit of of a short-term trip, what they saw, was that the patterns of their lives were replaced with the posture of hearing and responding to God's call. And today they're different. They went on a trip and experienced so that the posture of their lives could change into one of hearing and responding to God's call. And today something is different. When we met this past Wednesday night and they were talking about their stories and what they remembered and and what's been different, one after another, what I heard from them is that they got a taste of the fullness of life that comes from hearing and responding to God's call on them. 
And the difference between pre-trip and post-trip, where they had an opportunity to hear from God and see Him at work, they got a sense that the fullness of God that they experienced over there in Ecuador can be experienced here. But it begins when you take a posture of hearing, a posture of listening to God's call and being willing to respond. And now they're wrestling with how do they continue to walk in this new reality in light of a world that pushes against them having a deeper walk with Jesus? How do they continue to walk in the fullness of who Jesus is, maintaining a posture of listening when the noise of the world would seek to push that out? And I tell you that because they're high school students. They're students. And there are adults in this room, myself included, who are far behind our students, our children, who want to reposition and reposture their lives to hear from God so that they can live in the fullness of who He is today. Psalm 119 is all about this idea. Psalm 119 is all about this idea that God is calling and you can respond. Psalm 119 also is the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. We were talking last night and some found it ironic that I got the longest chapter because apparently I get a reputation for talking longer than I should sometimes. So they were a little nervous last night about how uh, the service would go if I had the longest psalm and the longest chapter. So thankfully last night we only went like 35 minutes long. So this morning we should really be fine as we get into it. Psalm 119 is, is structured, even though it's the longest, and it might be because it is the longest, it's structured to be memorized and passed on from generation to generation. We lose it in the translation to English, but there are actually 22 parts that each begin with a letter corresponding to the Hebrew alphabet. And within those 22 parts, each has a section of eight verses where the first word also begins with the same Hebrew letter. Why is that? Because it was set up to be memorized. It was set up so that you could coordinate it with the alphabet, so that you could memorize Psalm 119, so that it could be passed on from generation to generation. Why? Because they knew that learning this chapter and meditating on it, what it said would be a huge help in developing the ears to hear God calling. And honestly, isn't that the whole purpose of Scripture? Isn't the whole reason behind diving into God's Word and meditating on Scripture so that we can develop the ears to hear Him calling so that, so that we actually hear His voice in our life? Because a lot of times our approach to God is we take our voice and we make it His voice. But meditating and soaking in Scripture allows us to hear God's voice, to hear Him calling so that we can respond and react to who He is. And Psalm 119 is designed to help us do that. So, uh, because of its length, uh, I want to break it down. I want to look at just two sections. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you. I want to break it down into two sections that demonstrate this idea perfectly. That one, that God is calling. And two, that you can respond. That God is calling and you can respond. So, point number one. God is calling. And, And He's not just calling. He's calling for your whole heart. 
God is calling for your whole heart. Look at Psalm 119, uh, just verses 9 through 11. I want you to look at that. Here's what it says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When I was reading through this and I got to that phrase, with my whole heart I seek you, I had to stop. When I went through this, it was too long for me to just read it through all in one sitting. So I actually took a couple weeks, I was reading through it in Ecuador. And I remember I got to this section and I stopped and I underlined it. Because when I saw that phrase, with my whole heart, I seek you. I thought, well, what does whole heart really mean? And I remembered I underlined it because I wrestled with with this idea. Is that true of me? Can I say that honestly? God, with my whole heart, I seek you? And then I started to wonder, why does the author pose this question to a young man? Why doesn't he say, hey, old people, how do you keep your way pure? Why does he address it to a young man? And as I was thinking about it, I realized it's because he is interested in the, uh, what I call the where do you want to end up scenario. This idea of where do you want to end up. I found that when I, when I talk with people, when I interact, especially in counseling situations, that, that most people like to talk about what's happening today. They like to talk about uh, where they've been, what they've done. They like to talk about what's been done to them. But when I sit and talk with people, I find it's uncomfortable for many people to talk about who they want to be or where they want to end up. Why is that? Because confirming the direction that you want to go, your end goal, immediately forces you to reconcile your current choices with whether or not they're helping you get there. That's my where do you want to end up scenario. Confirming the direction that you want to go, your end goal, immediately forces you to reconcile your current choices with whether or not they're helping you get there. And that's why people don't like to talk about it. Let me give you a simple example. When I'm ordering my lunch at the cafe, love the food, it's great, what I don't want you to do is ask me the question, so are you still trying to lose 15 pounds so that you can get back to running? Right? I don't want you to ask me that question because I I want to enjoy the food that I want to enjoy. And I don't need you over my shoulder asking me if I want to end up 15 pounds lighter and running and healthy and active. I I don't want to hear that. Uh, Let me give you another example, a tougher one that I see in marriage counseling. Here's the where do you want to end up question. What kind of husband is God calling you to be? What kind of husband is God calling you to be? It's a very different question from the one that he wants me to ask him, which is how does your wife make you mad? See, he's comfortable talking about how his wife makes him mad, how his wife really sets him off. But the where do you want to end up question is what kind of husband is God calling you to be? Because that will go smack in the face of the reality of the choices and the decisions that you're making that are either going to get you there or aren't. Maybe it's a dating relationship. 
how does that guy or that girl make you a better follower of Jesus? How does that guy or that girl that you're, that you're dating, that you're with, maybe you're engaged to, how does that guy or that girl make you a better follower of Jesus? See, nobody wants to wrestle with that question. Here the question here's the question that they want to hear. Do I feel good when I'm around him? Does he make me feel special? Does she look good? Do they laugh at my jokes? Oh, one person laughed. That was nice. <laughs> but I wonder, do you wrestle with the where do I want to end up kind of questions? And honestly, I think that we run away from those things. Because honestly, we don't want to deal with it. That's one of the reasons that we run away from community. Because I don't need one person pushing the where do I want to end up kind of questions about my marriage, about my parenting, about my singleness, about my job. I just want people that are going to agree with me. And so what we find is that people, people run, they flee from community. Scripture tells us that iron sharpens iron, so one believer sharpens another and helps the other grow. That should be happening in community. Is sharpening comfortable? No. Is it necessary? Of course it is. Do you have accountability in your life? Do you have people who ask you the where do you want to end up kind of questions? The psalmist isn't asking a young man what feels good. He's not asking him what makes you happy. He's saying, do you have a plan to be in close relationship with God so that you can live in such a way that he is active and moving in your life? Do you have a plan to hear from God and respond to God so that he is active and moving in your life? That is the million-dollar question. And if the question is in verse 9, verse 10 has the answer. With my whole heart, I seek you. God is calling for your whole heart. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. Every single piece of who you are, He wants. Not the comfortable ones, not the religious ones, not the ones that just show up when you come to church. God wants all of your heart. I want to read something that I found uh, years ago, but, but it's, it, it describes this so well. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home by a guy named Robert uh, Boyd Munger. And it's, it's basically an allegory that he writes about how uh, he has asked Jesus to come into his life. He's given his life to Jesus. And he goes through this process of, of, of bringing Jesus in, and he writes about his heart being a home. And so he takes Jesus from room to room throughout his heart, and he invites Jesus to be part of the cleansing that happens in each one of those rooms. And so he goes through the library, which represents his mind, his thoughts. He goes through the dining room with Jesus, which represent his desires and his appetites. He goes into the workroom, which represent his gifts and his skills and his talents. He even goes by the locked closet of his life, those things that he hides and stores away that he doesn't want anyone to know about. The things that he's embarrassed by, the things that he's ashamed of, that he has put behind lock and key so that no one can see it, but he knows that they're there. 
And he goes room by room, phase by phase, through his heart with Christ, asking him piece by piece to take these different parts of him until finally he gets to the end of this walkthrough and he realizes the futility of giving Jesus portions of his home. And I want to read for you the ending that he comes to as he realizes the futility of only offering Jesus parts. Listen to this. He says, Then a thought came to me. I said to myself, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room, and no sooner have I cleaned that than another room is dirty. I begin on the second room, and the first room becomes dusty again. I'm so tired and weary trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I'm just not up to it. So I ventured a question. I said, Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the responsibility of the whole house and operate it for me and with me just as you did that closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? I could see his face light up as he replied, certainly, that is what I came to do. You cannot be a victorious Christian in your own strength. That is impossible. Let me do it through you and for you. That is the way. But, he added slowly, I'm not the owner of this house. I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property is not mine. The author writes, he says, I saw it in a minute and dropping to my knees, I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, I'm going to be the servant. You are going to be the owner and master and Lord. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house, describing its assets and liabilities, location and situation and condition. I eagerly signed it over to belong to him alone for time and eternity. Here, I said, here it is. All that I am and have forever. Now you run the house. Here's what I want you to understand. You will never experience the fullness of a life in Christ when you only give him access to a few rooms in your home. You will never experience the fullness of what it means to live victorious in Jesus. To have a life that is built on a solid rock instead of on the shifting sands of this world. A rock that doesn't move, a rock that isn't shaken, a rock that can't be changed. You will never experience the depth of fully knowing and being known by Christ in this world if you only give him a portion of your heart. If you leave areas of your home, uh, some are for him, but the rest are for me. There's a difference, a huge difference between asking Christ to be your Savior, rescuing you from the guilt of sin and death, and asking Him to be your Lord, and giving Him permission in your life to establish His mission for this world as your mission in this world. And as Christians, I think that we have been so distracted by this idea of, well, I prayed the prayer. And we confuse asking Christ to be our Savior and really understanding what it is for Him to be our Lord. God is calling for your whole heart. Not the parts, not the pieces. He wants it all. And giving Him your whole heart, it sounds radical until you see that it's exactly what you need. 
I can't tell you how many people that I see in problems and in struggles and in pain, all sorts of things, uh, growing from the space that you have unyielded to God in your heart. Whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's mercy, whether it's sin, whether it's anger, whether it's envy, pride, lust, areas of your heart that you have locked away, that you have refused to give Christ dominion over, and all of the problems that grow up from it, fractured relationships, loneliness, brokenness, institutional sin that stems from greed and waste, abuse, the list goes on and on. I can't tell you how many couples I sit down with who, once they get past the joy and the bliss of their wedding day, that years down the road, these places of their hearts that they have kept under lock and key from Christ really coming in and changing, whether it's the lust or the lack of forgiveness or the anger or the resentment or the hurt, those areas, they produce fruit years down the road. And you can go from a place of bliss to not having any understanding how you got here. All you know is that everything is upside down and broken. And so much of it is traced back to rooms that you grew accustomed to boarding off from Jesus coming in. Or families or individuals where I see one person makes a choice. What seems like a really small choice. And a seed is planted in their life. That these small little areas of unyielded space that they never gave to Christ, they never gave Him authority over or asked for deliverance from or freedom from or acknowledged as sin to the point where they uprooted it. These little unyielded spaces that grow and over years you find yourself with one small thing that leads to another and you find yourself doing things that you never would have thought you would do. And when you trace it back, It's because you have an unyielded space in your heart that you never gave to God. And I see it all the time. And Psalm 119 is the call from God to give Him your whole heart because your choices today will produce fruit. And some of you are living with fruit today from choices that were made, either that you made or that others made, and you're wrestling with the idea of how do I give God ownership of my heart? And I'm not saying that it's easy or simpler, that it can happen overnight, but there is a process of admitting His ownership and allowing His Spirit to show you what areas you have held back from Him to really have. And I want to ask you, what are the rooms... What are the relationships? What are the spaces in your life that you have held back from Him? What are those spaces in your life? Can you name them? Have you asked God to shine a light and show you? Because that's where it starts. So God is calling for your whole heart. Number two, when God calls, God hears your response. God hears your response. Along with his calling comes the reality that God actually hears you. And this next section in Psalm 119, it shows that to us. Look at verse 169. It says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. 
Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. One of the reasons that I love the Psalms is because they remind me that God hears my cry. That when God calls and I respond, God hears my cry and He draws near. One of the greatest comforts in times of deep pain and loss and wandering is His presence reminding us that we are not alone. And the book of Psalms is rich with that. Scripture is rich with it. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on him because he cares. Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most uh, beautiful uh, sections of the New Testament where Jesus talks, and and so much of that can be boiled down. Uh, Jesus saying, I see you, do not worry. This idea that the God who created everything sees you, and because he hears your cry, you don't have to worry because you can trust him. God hears your cry. Another piece in that section there is that God hears your praise. Look at verse 171. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. When God calls, one area of response should be praise. Because our praise, genuine, audible praise, is the mark of someone who is seeking after God's voice and posturing to respond, and that praise is a direct result. What role does praise play in your life? Why do we sing as part of our service? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, do you ever find it odd that you come here on a Sunday morning with a large group of people, a lot that you don't even know, and you stand and you just sing songs? I was thinking about that this week, and I've thought about it before. Where in your normal life does that ever take place? I mean, honestly, have you ever thought about that? Where in your normal job, your normal life, would you ever all get together and be like, hey, let's sing some songs? Think about it. In your job, I don't, maybe you work in finance, maybe you are a teacher. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you do. Maybe you work in a cubicle. Maybe you're in charge of a lot of people. Maybe you design radar-guided missile systems. Has your boss ever called you in and be like, hey, guys, we're going to have a team meeting? Turn to page number 27. We're going to sing the first, second, and fourth verse. Let's just start to sing together. You don't do that. Now, if there's a birthday cake involved, we're all very comfortable. We can do that. But have you ever wondered why we come in here and we actually sing songs? Well, here's the answer. Psalm 172, my tongue will sing of your word. There is power when our mouths sing of the goodness of God. There is something uniquely different about the people of God in that our tongue will sing of the glory of God. Our tongues will proclaim who He is. And so our worship isn't the prelude to the message. 
Our worship is a standalone activity that is counter to anything else that happens in your world where you come together as believers in Christ so that what? So that my tongue will sing of your word. So that means that worship doesn't look like this. Watermelon, watermelon. I don't know the words. I don't know the tune. Just sing a hymn. Just stop singing hymns. I don't know. See, but that's what worship's like for us sometimes, isn't it? I'm just going to sit this one out. I don't know it. I'm just going to let this one go. Maybe the next one will be better. See, worship isn't about reproducing your K-love experience from your car and putting it in this big room. That's not what worship is designed to be. Worship isn't just singing the songs from when you were a kid or singing the songs that you want to sing today. That's not what worship is. Scripture tells us really clearly that we can sing new songs because your mercies are new every morning. There are songs that we can sing that we don't know. Scripture also tells us that that when we get to heaven, we're going to sing the same song over and over and over again, and we're going to love it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There is an inerrant value in worship because it is with our tongues that we proclaim the goodness of God because when God calls and we respond, God hears our praise. Which means that worship isn't something that you sort of come into the way you want to or just sort of get there where you get there. I'll tell you, one of the things that drives me crazy is when we just sort of come into worship late and I did it myself this morning. I'm a huge hypocrite. But when you come into worship and you're like, when's Marty preaching? Is it time yet? I just come for Marty or I just come for the preaching. In and of itself, worship is an act of the follower of Christ. It's how we respond to who he is. It's not like the radio where we just pick what we like. Because our tongues will sing of the praises of God. I'm reminded of a guy in the church that I grew up is grew up in. His name was Mario uh, Lisi. And I remember Mario, I was a teenager when I, when I knew him, but he, he would be in church and he would be praising God and, and he would have his arms up and he would get so emotional when he would praise, but he had a terrible voice. It was just terrible. And he would sing so loud and he would get so into worship and his voice was so bad. And, and I remembered Mario at a, at a prayer night one time at our church and, and Marty, M- Mario, um, he was just a passionate, passionate guy. And, um, and I remembered he was praying that, that God would give him a better voice. Because he had such a heart and a passion to worship, and he wished that his voice could catch up. See, God didn't answer his, his prayer, because Mario always had a terrible voice. But I learned from Mario that our lips are designed to praise God him. Our lips are designed to sing of him. And when we come in and the worship time is just the, this thing we skip over to get to the message, we are missing the power of our response to God that our lips can praise him. Now, you may not know everything. You may not know the song, but my goodness, try. Because I know this is different from your day job. I know this is different from everything. There's no birthday cake when we come together. But we come together so that our tongues can sing of his word. That's why we try to move you into community to help you talk about the goodness of God because of verse 171. 
my lips will pour forth praise. My lips will pour forth praise. It goes great with my tongue, we'll sing of your word. That we put you into community so that you can talk about the goodness of God. Listen, Christians without joy are the worst. I'm just saying. And it might be because I've seen too many of them lately. Christians who just walk with this, with this permanent limp. And I've been convicted by Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I know that this world stinks at times. I know that there's stuff that you go through, stuff that you deal with. But can you say that you are trying to explore the depths of the reality that the joy of the Lord is my strength? And does that overflow? We don't need any more sugar-sweet Christians. We don't need any more Hallmark Christians and candy-coated sugar-sweet Christians. But do you have joy that wells up and it actually comes out of your mouth? Do people hear it? Do people sense it? Because God hears your praise. The last, God hears your cry, He hears your praise, God hears your call. Look at verses 173. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Just to boil that down, phrases like, I long for your salvation. Let my soul live. I've gone astray. Come find me. When you call him, he hears you and he rescues. You may be here today and you need some rescuing. You may be here today and and you need God to move towards you because you know, you know that you just don't feel him. You know that you're not walking with him. You know you're not living with him. Or you're just going through something that you just really, really need his, his hand to show up. We serve a God who shows up. We serve a God who moves towards you that when you call, he answers. When you cry out, he rescues. He responds. He moves towards you. He hears your call. So let me say, number one, God's calling and he wants all of your heart. Number two, you have a role to play. You can respond with the psalmist with things like, God, I long for you. God, I want my soul to find life in you. Or God, I've gone astray. Can you rescue me? When you call, he always answers. In Psalms, we see the sheep calling to the shepherd. But in Christ, we see the shepherd going after the lost sheep. God is for you. He's calling you. And he wants your whole heart. And you can respond. But it begins when you make listening to his call first. And when you respond with a heart for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are active, that you are living, and that you are good. God, I thank you that we can come here this morning and that we can do things that are different. And that, God, we don't run away from the differences of who we are. In fact, we run towards them because it reminds us that our home is not here. So, God, I ask for those that are here this morning who have gotten really comfortable in this world, comfortable to the point where they haven't given you full ownership of their lives. God, I ask that your spirit would shine on them in such a way that highlights and calls out 
where you long to have a deeper sense of ownership for them. God, I pray that they would hear your call for their whole heart. That God, your spirit would shine that light and it would illuminate for them the areas that they need to give to you. God, areas that maybe they have held on for far too long. Lord, that they can come to you with hearts abandoned, seeking after you, relying on you, leaning towards you, falling into your arms, giving you all that they are so that they can fully respond to you. So Lord, we come now with our hearts offered up.